Hi, I'm George Bailey. My wife, Christina, and I have four children. We started this podcast, Choose the Nickel, in an effort to learn how to raise our children to be financially and professionally successful adults. We seek out fascinating people and ask them about their own childhood so that we can learn from them. Our next guest is Peter Anthony Wynn, marketing and course creation guru and famed hairstylist. Peter Anthony has helped some of the top industry leaders either develop, launch, outline, or create their winning digital products. He's a speaker and author. During his years as a hairstylist, his salon was recognized as the Modern Salon of the Year in 1997 and was included for three consecutive years in the list of top 200 salons in Salon Today magazine. You can learn more about Peter Anthony by going to the show notes for this episode at www.choosethenickel.com. We hope you enjoy our conversation. Peter Anthony Wynn, welcome to Choose the Nickel. Hey, George. How are you today? I'm doing really well. It's good to see you. So I've got to ask, what inspired you to establish You Will Change the World? Oh, man. That's a long question. The short answer is after I was at the World Trade Center at 9-11 that evening, and it just opened up my imagination to what's possible. And some of the biggest things that have happened to me in my life were mentors and having access to mentors. And I thought, man, what would it look like if we could have access to mentors that do more than just inspire, but actually teach? And it took us about eight years to catch up technology-wise. As we were doing that, we've been making video classes since 1989. The technology to deliver it digitally caught up by about 2007, 2008, and we were off to the races by 2012. Wow. Awesome. You guys have been doing a great job. And I can see on your website that you've got like a whole slew of material for people to choose from. One of the stories that I heard you tell about how you got started, you talk about mentors. And I think for you, Tony Robbins, this guy had a very big impact on your life. And I want to hear more because I love this story. If you could just tell it to our listeners, that'd be great. Oh, sure, man. It's a quick story. I met Tony back in 1984. Yeah. I'm pretty sure 1984. And I was like 19 years old, man. And I had listened to all his tapes in my Camaro. I had this box set of 16 tapes and I I only had a cassette deck in my 1970 Camaro, which was a beast of a car. It was in horrible condition. But the cassette deck worked, and I put in a tape, and I listened to it, and I was like, wow, and I flipped it over. And I remember being in that Camaro off and on for 17 hours, just eating, listening. I was mesmerized. And Tony was coming out to speak at the Waldorf Astoria in New York City. And I was a disc jockey in New York City at the time. I thought, man, I got to see this guy. So I DJed that evening and showed up at the Waldorf Astoria, slept in a phone booth, those little red phone booths. Waldorf, <laughs> at the time, Waldorf had really Love great it. phone booths because they had pads. So I showed yeah. up at the phone booth after DJing. It was about 5 o'clock in the morning, and the doors opened at about 7.30. So I get a knock on the phone booth. You know, like, <laughs> oh, I'm here with the seminar. I'm jumping all around. And I'm here every day. Why is this such a big deal right now? <laughs> I'm a homeless person. And yeah. I remember just trying to sneak my way into his seminar. And, you know, I got caught at the door and they were like, well, you know, I'm like, listen, Mr. Robbins, you said on your tapes, man, if you're committed, you can do anything. I said, I'm committed. I'm doing this. He said, I love your passion. Right? That's Tony. I love your passion. It's 
your passion's admirable. We've already started the seminar, and the way the seminars worked at those days were about 150 people. Oh, yeah. And he'd break everybody into groups of between eight and 12. They were all these fire walkers. They'd done the fire walk already. And I was like, well, you know, but I'm committed. So he tried to kick me out like three or four times. By the end, I just started rearranging this chairs and picking up garbage. And I didn't have the money for the seminar, but I promised him one day I'd be his best client. And after spending probably over a million dollars in the last 25, 30 years with Tony, I became a good client. I'm certainly not his best client. Um, but I did, I did put together, it's a testament to Tony, and it's a testament to great information. When your information is applicable universally and for a long time, meaning that the keys to success will be the same in 30 years that they are today. You know, and, you know, Marcus Aurelius was giving us his lectures from 2000 years ago, and they still are applicable. Benjamin Franklin's 13 precepts still applicable today. So whatever that success, if the person who's sharing that level of mentorship with you at that moment resonates, like Tony resonated with me. Yes. I was able to extrapolate from Tony a lot of the things that I needed to hear in the way that I needed to hear it. And it made sense to me at that moment. Wow. Does that make, does that make you know? Is oh, that it, makes, it makes a lot of sense. It's yeah. Great. So I just followed him and, you know, we did some cool things together and, you know, we supported some charities and some orphanages and we've traveled the world together when I was one of his platinum partners for a few years and we met a lot of people and, I helped introduce him to really cool people. And through that process, I've been introduced to thousands and thousands of extraordinary people. That and is great. Thought, Man, it's cool. Yeah, it was, yeah. It was good. One of the things that really jumped out to me about that story, though, is that he talked you out of law school. <laughs> <laughs> now, I went to law school and, you know, there are times that I wish that Tony Robbins had been there to talk me out of law school. But why? why how did he convince you on that? I don't want to say that I've embellished over the last 35 years that story, but the, the <laughs> essence of the story, the essence of the story is accurate. At that seminar, at the Waldorf Astoria, yes. Tony introduced me to a concept. And at the time, he didn't have a way values and towards values and core values. He just had values. And he said, if you put your values down and you look at that list, whatever you should do in life is going to happen in your top five values, because that's kind of where you live. Yeah. And creativity was at the top, financial independence, making a difference. And a lot of the things that I thought would be solved as an attorney, I was in the Stony Brook pre-law program, and I was in the process of taking my LSATs. I thought law, the path that I was choosing, which was to become, at that point, I was really intrigued with becoming a district attorney. No money more people in law school than there were lawyers. It just it was the 1980s, man. And mm -hmm. I thought, wow. So I looked at some other, <laughs> other creative where I could be creative, be financially independent, own my own business, live the American dream. So I thought, wow, wouldn't it be cool if there were some other things? There was somebody I was studying at the time. His name was Lee Iacoa. Yeah. And he was the CEO at the time for Chrysler. But he had crushed it with Ford, with the intro of the Ford Mustang, and the essence of how baby boomers work. And I thought, man, then he did the Ford Mustang. Then he did the Chrysler minivan, which saved Chrysler in 1979. 
And I thought, well, what other industry are the baby boomers impacting? So they obviously impacted colleges because there's so many students. But they were impacting another industry called the beauty and health industry at the time. And I thought, these guys have always been known as the youth generation. And then I looked and I, I looked at the ratio of hair color to hair cuts in professional salons. It was like 6% of the gross revenue of a hair salon. What at the time in the late seventies, early eighties, when we had the data, it was about 6%. And I thought, wow, with all these people, as they get older, they're going to go gray. Maybe I should be in the hair color business. That's and how it happened. I like that's it. how I wrote a paper. I got picked up by a company called Wella. They flew me out to Dusseldorf, Germany. I did a keynote for their CEOs about the trajectory of the next 25 years and how the hair color industry will double. And, you know, as a 20 year old kid and, (laughs) and I was wrong. It more than doubled every five years. Wow. What I didn't include in my thesis was that it wouldn't just be to get rid of gray, but it would become a fashion statement all the way down to 12 years old. Got it. So so as it became more popular, it became more popular, like a tattoo. Once you can roll your sleeves up and people say, man, I dig your tattoos, there weren't sleeve art as an art, wasn't an art form, except for really bad criminals in the 1970s, bikers. But now it's an art form and it's massively accepted worldwide as an art form. So as things catch, they create a higher level of appeal. And then by 1989, we opened our first video production company. And our first salon. And that's how I simultaneously got into teaching the craft of hairdressing and hair color to open it up because I had watched a bunch of Vidal Sassoon videos and I was using all of Tony's stuff. Make sure that when you're out there, if someone else can do it, all you have to do is model what they've done. So I just modeled really great, famous hairdressers and became a very great, famous hairdresser for that 20-year career. What's important to me about that lesson and what was going on with you is that there are a lot of kids out there. This is what we're really talking about is how do we really encourage kids to grow up, to adjust to the professional world. But there are a lot of kids out there who feel like if I'm going to be respected, I have to be an attorney. I have to be an accountant. I have to be a CEO. I mean, they have all these ideas that we put into their head. But what you've done and what I hope more kids will do is that you assessed the situation, the ground game. Like, where is there a need? I'm going to go run, and with all of my energy, I'm going to fill that need. Well, if you jump into the current, I knew the current of society was taking us in a direction. So I jumped into the current, but I just want to preface, there's a reason that if you're an attorney or a doctor or a high-level CEO that you're respected. Because Mm -hmm. that journey takes dedication, commitment, perseverance, and self-sacrifice. There's no doubt. There's a reason. If you apply perseverance, dedication, education, and self-sacrifice to any endeavor to become number one, you'll be respected. Absolutely. And my goal was to be respected. So most hairdressers at the time were charging $15 for a haircut. I charged $100. And mm-hmm. I had to ask the question, what, well, it was, I think, 95, actually. But what makes my $95 haircut in the 1990s so much better than a 15 or an $18 haircut? How do I justify the value? So I had to become really 
congruent with my craft, but be able to articulate the subtleties in my craft that would make a difference to the human being. And I think most young people don't understand that it's the subtleties in their craft, the dedication and commitment to those subtleties. Like they say, the devil is in the details. Yeah. Yeah. When you do that, you're going to explode, whether it's online marketing, which I'm a big fan of now, whether it's a podcast, which I'm obviously a big, big fan of, you know, (laughs) how are you putting together your life and are you giving it a hundred percent? I don't talk about 110% because we don't have 110%. Man, if you, <laughs> it, it, yeah. but what is your capacity? Your, yeah. your reasonable capacity? Well, I would say, what is your unreasonable capacity? And, and I, I think we I, meant I, the I, same thing, but it's yeah. just a different word. Because there's going to be moments in the development of your career where you must be unreasonable. With this experience, I look at Peter Anthony Wynn and I see that at one point you were a kid. <laughs> and there was, there, believe it or not, yes, you were. Yeah. <laughs> That's so and, funny, George. So I think about that, and I think about the guts that it must have taken to make that shift away from what you knew would at least give the veneer of success to something that was really risky. Tell me a little bit about you <sighs> as a child and what prepared you to be able to make that decision earlier in your life. Man, that's it. A- tough question. You know, it's interesting. I think I didn't have a lot of friends. I think that was one of the things that helped prepare me. Hmm. I grew up, I'm a Christian now, but I grew up in the Jehovah's Witness faith. They're highly segregated in the 1960s and 70s. There was a lot of persecution, you know, just social persecution, I'll call it, you know, where we wasn't socially acceptable. You know, we were the people who knocked on your door (laughs) at all hours. You know, even though we knocked with a smile, and a suit, it still was, we weren't invited. I didn't have, I'd be honest with you, I didn't have a lot to lose. I only had a lot to gain. Hmm. And when I look at the people who are the most successful, I see a lot of that in success is when everything's great, you grow up, you're really good looking, you have great metabolism, you're naturally athletic, you can read a book quickly, you're, everything falls into place. Actually, I believe that it's harder for those people because they have everything, George. There's nothing. They're shooting 85, 90%, 85, 90% of the time. Yeah. Where I'm shooting to just pass. I'm trying to get to 60%. The road ahead is so glorious and beautiful and the promised land that I'm willing to sacrifice certain things. I'm willing to sacrifice time. I'm willing to sacrifice perhaps some reputation, but I didn't have a lot of friends, so I wasn't giving up a lot of friends, Yeah, if if that makes any sense. And that social pressure that comes from having to be different than all of the people that now, I gave up a lot because I was an Italian-American. I did give up a lot in that portion of my culture because Italian guys that were heterosexual at that moment weren't going into the salon business Yeah, and dropping out of law school or dropping out of the potential of going to law school. That wasn't really their deal. So they were like, well, why would you do that? Well, and your parents reacted a little bit that way as well. (laughs) Well, you have something to tell me? (laughs) (laughs) That was was your father's words, right? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Well, my mother said, do you have something to tell your father? And then my father got on the phone and said, do you have something to tell us, son? And I was like, yes, I just told you I'm dropping out of law school. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) 
But, but so, my mom had the same reaction, George, when I quit hairdressing and opened my first salon. She said, why would you do that? You're making $100,000 a year. In the 1980s, that was the milestone, $100,000 oh, yeah. a year. And for a hairdresser to do it, it, very few people in the world were doing it, never mind a hairdresser. My mom couldn't understand why you give up a good job and spend your money to open a business and you know nothing about opening a business. She didn't comprehend risk. Oh, yeah. So wherever risk presented itself, my mother was risk adverse. Her generation was risk adverse. So I was just like, well, you know, there's something to be said for youth, right? Oh, yeah. You yeah. don't know what you don't know. <laughs> so at what point did they come around? Was there ever a point at which they came around? Well, my mom passed away about eight weeks ago, and she came around in the I'm sense sorry that, to hear that I am too. She came around in the sense that she always loved me, right? So it oh, didn't yeah. matter what I was doing. I could be in a puppet show and my mom would be sitting in the first row because I'm her son. But she never understood my entrepreneurial journey because she didn't, just didn't have a basis to, of understanding of it. But she was wonderful and she was loving and in general supportive. She came, but it's easy to come around when you start making millions. Mm. Then everybody says, I always knew. You were different, but you were smart. You were so creative as a kid. <laughs> like, I always did. Right? Did you? Did you? Because I didn't. Because yeah, I haven't heard from you in 15 years. But you knew. Yeah. You know, so it's, I think that, and, you know, I have a very, very good friend. His name is Greg Secker. Yeah. He's one of the top traders in the world and one of my dearest and best friends. And Greg and I had a conversation in London at his home last year. And, and he said, Peter, you know, the best revenge is success. You know, success evens out the playing field. And the challenge with that is one out of 100 people will be successful. 99 people will be victimized for their trying. And that's why so few people get in, because we should praise the process versus demonize the failure. Because you have such a great chance of failure beyond success. But if you don't learn to praise your own failure, you're not going to ever try hard enough to become successful. And I sort of equated George to uh, football, right? Oh, yeah. You know, when you're on the one-yard line and you have 99 yards to go, it's fantastic. The field is open. You can run any play. Everything is wonderful. You can pass, you can run, you can do a fake, you can do anything. When you're at the 99-yard line with one yard left to go, there's only two or three plays. You're either going to run it in, the quarterback's going to try to jump over the defensive line, or you're going to try to do a little pass. But because the playing field is so small, the defense, which they say wins championships, converges on. It knows what you're going to do to keep you from winning. And Uh that's the success in any field. Yeah. When you're starting out, it seems great, man, I'm opening my first business. I'm picking out all the pretty chairs and the pretty colors. And, but you should be focused on marketing. You should be focused on telling your story. You should be not focused on the color of the walls or the texture of the fabric. It's irrelevant. People want to know the story. They want to know who you are because that's who they're going to believe in the one yard line. That's who they're going to believe in when there's one yard to go. They need to know the quarterback is going to win the game. The leader on the field, the team needs to rally. The team knows we got three tries to get this in or we're shooting for a field goal at best. And field goals lose games if you do them consistently. 
There's something so powerful about story. You know, just listening to your story, I, I, it makes me think of a few other things. And that is, as a child, were you ever learning about money? Because I look at what you were doing. It wasn't just, yeah, Peter's going to go and he's going to open a hair salon. But this was business. And business is hard. And you can't get that far without really having understanding of money. Did you learn about that as a kid or how? No, thank goodness that I was never taught about money. Why do you say that? Because if I would have been a little bit more knowledgeable, I wouldn't have done it. If you go to entrepreneurial school, you know, maybe you go to Wharton or someplace like that, and you graduate as an entrepreneur, business school, business degrees were quite common. They tell you you need six to 12 months savings. Runway. To, yeah. To runway. They tell you to make sure you have all your personal stuff in place. They tell you, to, and here's the truth. All of that's just complete garbage. Because the truth is, if you wait until you get that, you probably are successful. And the challenge is you have more to risk. So if yes. you're successful, if a 45-year-old if a man is jumping, or woman, but a successful 45-year-old human being in the U.S., They've probably acquired a house. They probably have acquired a nice level car. And now they have some capital to invest in their own business. But they're risking, the other side is they're risking their solidarity as a citizen with all this nice stuff. Because mm -hmm. the truth is your business is going to lose money for the first few years. It's like a child. It, wants, it needs energy and food and, and you have to sacrifice so they don't want to sacrifice their place in life. I was smart in the sense that if I did it in my, at 23 or 24, what am I sacrificing? I'm a, you know, I'm basically a grad student that's, you know, I lived with five friends. We rented a big Victorian house. And then I moved to a split level house where I rented it with two friends. Then I moved to a studio apartment where over a garage where I was just by myself, you know, and I was sleeping on an Ikea couch on the floor eating Kraft macaroni and cheese. <laughs> for two years because it was five boxes for a dollar. So that yeah. was my dinner. And, you know, but if I were married with kids, my wife today would never do Kraft macaroni and cheese five nights a week and say, wow, I feel so blessed. We have such a wonderful life. But as a young man, you can do that because there's nobody looking, there's nobody judging. But when you're part of society, they're judging your success based on what they see. When you're young and you're making this determination, what happens is people are so excited to help you because they wish they did it when they were young. So I got a lot of help. How do we judge our children less? Forgive ourselves. What do you see as the relationship? Well, when you forgive yourself, see, generally we judge anything we're judging is, just, is something that we don't like about ourselves. You know, you should work harder. Well, that probably means you felt like you should have worked harder. But you've got to forgive yourself for what you didn't know or the mistakes that you've made because you can't go back and take them back. They are what they are. You've come to the spot that you've come. So it's easier to forgive yourself. And then at that point of forgiveness, you release guilt. And when you release guilt, you can find love. And when you find love, you can love your children unconditionally. And when you love them unconditionally, all things are possible for them in my opinion, as a parent, and in my opinion, as a parent who's lost a child. Hmm. You know? And thank you for sharing that. I really appreciate it. 
I have two more questions. One of them I just can't resist. And the other one's, it's a question I ask all my guests on this show. But the first question is, when did you become fashionably aware? Because I'm just going to tell the the audience here, like, go up, look up a picture. The guy has amazing hair. (laughs) You do. And right now, you know, this is not, we're not sending this out via video at all, but you're wearing one of the coolest shirts a person can wear on this whole planet but when did that when did you become aware a tiny bit of a long wind to this story but i know the exact <laughs> moment i know the exact moment yes I, see, moments, these are the best two moments precipitated that first i asked nine girls to my senior prom they all said no <laughs> and so Gosh. i didn't go to my senior prom and i graduated with a class of 2900 people i went to sachem high school class of 82 really damaging to a young man's ego when he can't get a date. When I became a hairdresser, I was technically, my technical skill set, my technical prowess was extraordinary. I was the best hair cutter to ever graduate at that moment, perhaps one of the best in the world, because I just had such a great fine motor skill set in the Mm -hmm. area of cutting hair. That didn't make me the most creative. I'm not saying it was the most creative. But my technical skill set, I was teaching my instructors. By the time I left school, I was holding classes and winning contests on the cutting component. You, you could have been a heart surgeon, Peter Anthony. I could have <laughs> you been. Could have right? been a, yeah, 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 yeah. My mother tells me. <laughs> so I'm standing in this salon. So the accolades get me this interview at the best salon. There's a Billy Joel song, Going to Cruise the Miracle Mile. Right, going to get a set of white wall tires. And the Miracle Mile is a place on Long Island because Billy and I grew up on opposite sides of Newbridge Road. He grew up in Hicksville and I grew up in Levittown. We all knew the Miracle Mile. And I get a, I get a job at the Paul Anthony Salon. Now, I'm Peter Anthony. I get a job at the Paul Anthony Salon, you know, Manhasset Shopping Center, Miracle Mile, most expensive shopping center on the planet. I'm cutting large right out of school. I'm like, this is the bomb. And I'm watching this guy. So one day this lady comes in, but uh, that's a different story. I'm watching this guy. His name was Raphael, an Israeli hairdresser. And Raphael couldn't cut a straight line if you gave him a ruler and a laser guide. This guy was (laughs) the worst hair cutter I've ever seen in my life. He wouldn't section the hair. Now, here I am learning all these sections and geometrics and applying everything. This guy's just combing everything down, taking a scissor that looks like it with a plastic handle. You know, I'm paying yeah. 5000 for my scissors. He's paying 29 bucks. He's bending them. And every haircut, you know, I'm, I'm taking my hand and I'm going starting high on my right and going low on my left. Every haircut's on an angle. It's horrible. <laughs> but he's Raphael. And at the time, I grew up, I never used my full first name, which was Peter Anthony. I always, everybody yeah. shortened it to Pete. And Pete, I realized, Pete's your buddy. He's the guy you bowl with. He's an electrician or Pete's a dude. He's a regular guy. And regular people don't get $95 a haircut. And I realized that when I'm standing there in that salon, I'm dressing like a kid who wanted to go to law school. I have a, a little Oxford shirt on with my gray flannel trousers, yeah. with my penny loafers. I looked ridiculous with my hair parted on the side. And I showed this picture at my seminars. So at that moment, I realized that my skill set needed a brand. I want to make this clear to your audience. Yeah. 
skill and branding are two different things. You have to market yourself and marketing trumps skill. Raphael had a line of people waiting for him and made a ton of money and was the busiest hairdresser in that salon and one of the busiest hairdressers in the country, making a ton of money, couldn't cut a straight line. Here I am spending so much time on skill and no time on marketing or branding. But Raphael sounds like an artist. Oh, Raphael does my hair. So I said, (laughs) all right, you're going to call me Peter Anthony. And I grew my hair out and I just had long down to my mid chest. And I had this long, beautiful hair and I looked like Fabio. And I got a little skinnier and I said, okay, cool. And then all of a sudden life changed. I got the dates I wanted, people lined up around the block for me to do their hair because I looked the part. Peter Anthony is going to do one of his signature cuts. And I started to tell the story of how I made the journey. And for the first four years of my career, I didn't make a dime, not a a dime, like maybe a hundred bucks a week, 150 bucks a week, maybe the first three and a half. The fourth year from four to five, I made over $100,000 and it was in the fifth year that I opened my salon. Wow. So I had another company, an entertainment company as well that fueled the growth of the salon. It was about marketing. You have to look the part. Seeing is believing. Whatever they see, they believe. If you look like a bad person, they believe you're a bad person. They don't ever take time to look into your heart, to look into your soul. You have to understand that. And then once I understood that, I could also translate that into business and give people really cool looks. And now, it, to, I go to the barber, George. <laughs> I pay twenty dollars a haircut. <laughs> well, you know, but but I I like your point. I think that in some ways it's unfortunate, but it is a reality that we have to confront. And that it's that marketing. Is, yeah, it, it is. Packaging marketing. is everything. I mean, listen, yeah. a Mercedes Benz gets you from point A to point B. They don't change the speed limit because you drive a Mercedes versus a Chevy. They don't change the speed limit. So why do we spend so much money on Mercedes and BMW to get to the same destination at the same time? Because of the packaging, you know, the Mercedes says something about whatever it is. You know, I like Mercedes, but. Now, what year was it that you opened your your salon after you'd been seeing that success? 1989. Okay, got it. And to put it in perspective, by 1997, you were recognized as the modern salon of the year special distinction. In the early 2000s, you were getting tons of recognition from Salon Today magazine. In 96, we were voted. We were presented the award in 97. We had one of the top salons in the world. And then Salon Today magazine, we were the fastest growing 200 salons four years in a row documented Mm -hmm. on millions. And I think we hit our first million in 92. I want to say the year of 92. We did. We broke five hundred thousand in our first year, which was the big milestone. That was like only two yeah. percent of the salons did that, and nobody was doing a million. And they never thought we'd do it where we did it. And then, by the time we sold, we were doing about eight hundred thousand to eight fifty on average in just retail sales per location, which never had been done before either. Awesome. So selling through, and it all turned into seminars. It all turned into the stuff I talk about. It's cool. It's cool. Last question. Uh-oh. What is your favorite charitable cause? That's an interesting question today for you to ask me. My heart always moves towards St. Jude. I have four children. I've lost a child. I've never lost a child to cancer. 
but I can, as a parent, tell you when you feel helpless about being able to help your child, St. Jude just steps up, man. Those guys are the real deal. They are absolutely 100% a family saver for the people that they can touch. So if people can go out and help more of those parents in need, because you know cancer can destroy a family not just the child. Yes. Even if the child survives the treatment, the family is still decimated financially. And it doesn't matter how much money you have. You can have a million, $2 million, and it could all be gone in a year. And you'd do anything for your child, so you'd spend it. Yeah. Yeah, so St. Jude. Thank you. And thank you so much for sharing so many wonderful personal stories. It really is <laughs> very wonderful. Man, I got to ask you a question, man. This is cool what you're doing. What's your inspiration to talk to just regular guys like myself and extrapolate stories? Like, where are you going? Where will we see you in two to three years? Thank you. I, I really appreciate that. Let me give you the, the best answer I can. Of course, I love my kids. Like any dad loves any child. And I look at my own childhood. I grew up in a dysfunctional family with a father who didn't have normal boundaries. And for me, I feel like this is a way of searching for some meaning in that, trying to create meaning out of that experience, trying to, in some ways, signal to my children that I really care. Now, no signal, of course, is going to be as clear as time spent invested in that child. And so I do think about that as well. Like, what am I doing? Who am I as a character and as a father? Another thing that motivates me you know, it's funny because I could talk to the specialists. They study how we should parent and they write journal reports and things like that. And I love talking to them. I love learning from them and I believe in expertise. But sometimes I think we underestimate the expertise of those around us. And that's the expertise I love to hear. I love the stories, Peter Anthony. I, I think that they're very powerful. And I'm driven not so much by data, but by stories. You know, I think it's interesting because isn't that how cultures grew for thousands and thousands of years? We passed on stories. Oh, yeah. You know, yeah. we passed on mentorship. What you're doing is amazing. The fact that your children can be witnesses of what you're doing, it's incredible as well. You know, I will share with you, anybody can be an expert. <laughs> yeah. Any, anybody can spend their life being an expert. Here's what Mike Tyson said. Everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face. One of my favorite quotations, yes. And life has a way of punching us all in the face. Whatever you think you're great at, whatever you think you can do, God bless you. And God has blessed you. Yeah. But oh, you, have to, you, have to, you have to stand there and take the punch, and then you have to come back. You have to. Mm -hmm. And take a deep breath and realize that you might not have known as much as you thought. Ah. What do they say? More is written in a single day today than any human being can read in a lifetime. More is That's written in one single day than any human being can read if they spent just their entire life reading just what was written today. They wouldn't get to the end of it. So expertise, it's the stories that tell how to react. And we're watching the story of your life. So thank you so much for allowing me to share my story, which I don't think is really super cool, but I'm glad to do it. Um, <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> and, but I'm, I'm also glad that you made me part of this. And thank you so much. Thank you so much, Peter, for being on the show. It's been really inspiring.
Thank you. Thank you for listening. Be sure to check the show notes at www.choosethenickel.com for links to names, books, and other resources we discussed in today's show. While you're there, subscribe to your newsletter. Also, please like us on Facebook, subscribe to our YouTube channel, and share with your friends. We appreciate your support.